I would like to give thanks to the ancestors, known and unknown, those who have paved the way for us to survive this moment of time and to have a reference point to use as a blueprint to deal with these hellish times we are living in. I would also like to give honor and reverence to the woman of the universe for your superior work, for bringing forth the spiritual information through the triple stage of darkness of your womb and giving birth to God. We would like to give reverence to the universe and praises to the indigenous. My name is Raheem Shabazz and this is Necessary Blackness Podcast. Necessary Blackness Podcast, every Wednesday at 6 p.m. with award-winning journalist and filmmaker Raheem Shabazz. This podcast is only for those who are unapologetic because the mind of the conscious man or woman recognizes no monopoly on truth. Truth is relative and always to be sought. Hey Atlanta, have you heard? True Laundry Detergent is now offering free shipping in the Atlanta area. Just text the word TRUE to 404-493-0523 or give us a call. That's 404-493-0523. True Detergent is four times concentrated and perfect for those HE washers. Just one ounce removes dirt, brightens fabrics, and leaves each load with a clean, fresh scent. Best of all, True contains no animal products, and it's safe for sensitive skin. Follow us on social media, True Detergent ATL. Award-winning producer Raheem Shabazz continues the Elementary Genocide documentary series with the School to Prison Pipeline. That film exposes the social engineering done to African-American children in the school system. And his other film, Elementary Genocide 2, The Board of Education versus The Board of Incarceration, takes an even deeper look at the history of the American school system and how it was made to justify subjugating black Americans. These films are on track to be the most discussed films in black America. These films feature people like Dr. Boyce Watkins, Dr. Francis Kretz Welsing, and many, many more. The documentary is available right now at elementarygenocide.com. That's elementarygenocide.com. The creators of Elementary Genocide Part 1, The School to Prison Pipeline, and Part 2, The Board of Education versus The Board of Incarceration, present the third installment, Academic Holocaust. Each film produced, directed, and personally funded by writer Raheem Shabazz. Hollywood Chronicles says the documentary Elementary Genocide turns a critical eye towards the dehumanizing educational environment that criminalizes black and brown youth by funneling them from schools to prisons. As the third installment to the critically acclaimed series nears completion, we're looking to our legion of supporters to help us reach the finish line by making a donation today. If you've learned anything, shared any content, or have received any value from the Elementary Genocide brand, you're going to love Elementary Genocide 3, featuring the likes of Kaba Kemi, David Banner, Shahad Razad Ali, Michael M. Hotep, and Professor James Small. To help spread this important message to the masses, visit elementarygenocide.com or search Elementary Genocide 3 on Indiegogo.com and make your contribution today. That's elementarygenocide.com or Indiegogo.com. If you're unable to donate, please share our cause with your family and friends. Peace and power, black family. This is your host, Raheem Shabazz, and this is episode 17 of Necessary Blackness Podcast. 
Today, we're going to chop it up with Daruba Benward Hard. Daruba is an activist, former prisoner, Black Panther Party leader, and co-founder of the Black Liberation Army. Daruba in Swahili means the storm. Ladies and gentlemen, get ready for Daruba. The brother is highly intellectual, well-read, and he always brings the truth and he makes you think. And without further ado, I'm going to get Daruba on the line and we're going to chop it up. And it's always a monumental moment when I get down and be able to kick it with the OG. You'll hear it here first. And now our feature presentation. All right. Tell us about the white right wing agenda of the present administration and what black America got to do to, to counter the attack. I mean, there's a whole multiplicity of um, dimensions to uh, and consequences to the present political order. And I think that we're not very much prepared. We're ill-prepared in terms of our community organization, type of political leadership that our community really requires right now, the type of stand-up leadership. Um, but we're really not at, a, at, at an advantageous position. After eight years of Obama and, and the type of uh, move to the right that he is permitted um, during his eight years, the type of policies that he carried out. You know, it was um, his administration that, that, that handed that handed the empire to um, over to to the Bush uh, cabal. I mean, to the Trump cabal. So um, it's very hard to uh, to talk about how the right wing power in this country, how how wealth has consolidated and um, and controlled uh, the two party system the electoral system here in the United States. And this rise of right-wing anti-race, this rise of right-wing racism, anti-immigration sentiments, the so-called popularism of the white working class is is occurring across the whole entire spectrum of the Western industrialized world. And so we need to understand that that what we're experiencing in terms of police, uh, policing in the United States, we're experiencing in terms of, of, of white supremacy, the rise of white supremacy, uh, consolidation of, of wealth and, and political power, you know, is represents a crisis in the economic system that, that the people with property and wealth are intent on, on managing. And that management requires that they control population, that people function based on fear and uh, fear of each other, fear of the unknown, fear of terrorism, fear of crime, fear of drug addiction. Uh, we have a society that's functioning and propositioned on fear. And the saviors that stand between our fears and their realization are are the police and um, state security apparatus that constantly tells us that we need them to protect us. So we have painted ourselves into a corner here. We, have, we don't have the type of uh, economic power and control of, of our economies that are needed to exercise some type of independent political uh, insurgency on our part to maintain that, to put that forward, to represent our interests. At the same time, we don't have the type of people in, in, in positions of, of influence and control and elected offices that really have the strong backbone, that really have an analysis of our situation and, and who are genuine abolitionists rather than reformists of white supremacy. I think so. We're we're in bad shape. 
And I think that in the next year or so, uh, the United States will involve itself more heavily in wars abroad and foreign wars and, and more heavily in terms of uh, militarized policing. So we're, we're, we're headed for a really um, grim period of, of fascism and, and political repression. You mentioned eight years of Obama and his running of the empire. Some might argue that Obama was the best thing to happen to black America. What would you say in defense of that? Well, I wouldn't defend that. I think Obama's record speaks for itself. He came in talking about ending uh, the U.S. Uh, war in Iraq, and instead he wound up expanding. Uh, he said that uh, he would bring the troops home from Iraq. He managed a, um, a, a rise called a, a surge in Iraq that resulted in the formation of, of an Iraqi uh, a resistance movement that morphed into uh, ISIL. Um, Islamic Republic. And he has carried out more drone attacks, over 500-something drone attacks in office than any other president before him. And he has killed more people on designated assassination list that he used to supervise every morning than any other president. Um, and he's oversaw the overthrow of Muammar Gaddafi and the Libyan uh, government um, for finance capital purposes, for the purposes of securing um, the U.S. currency and, and, and oil. We saw him. Um, he's also a, a signed the largest arms deal in U.S. history with the uh, racist apartheid government of Israel and basically gave them a carte blanche in, in terms of military aid and economic assistance to this uh, racist settler state. And so um, I don't know how we can say that Obama has done anything for black folks because he hardly spoke about black people or their plight or their situation. Um, he presided over a system of mass incarceration of over 2.5 million uh, prisoners. Um, it's true that as a federal uh, official, he wasn't responsible state incarceration, but nonetheless, Justice Department under Obama has did nothing to rein in the police terrorism and murder and, and assassination of, of black folks was going on for eight years under his administration. He hardly spoke on it, except on a few occasions. So I don't understand why we could say that he has done, he has been uh, beneficial to Africans in the United States. Now, on the other hand, in terms of finance capital in the military, he has been one of the greatest presidents ever. A lot of folks fail to realize that a lot of things that Trump uh, uh, is doing in terms of expanding immigration prisons and strengthening the um, hiring more border police and more federal agents. Obama did that for all eight years of his presidency. You know, he deported more people. He was known as the deporter in general. You know, he deported more people than, than any other president, you know. Um, so. We need to really understand that, that a lot of the things that Obama got away with, you know, was due to the fact that if you had a black comparable class, you still do, you have a black political elite class that looked at Obama as a triumph of triumph for the slave mentality, you know. So I don't think that, that, that we could really look at the Obama administration as, as something, as, as an administration that worked really on behalf of African people, as opposed to on behalf of administering the empire and the military-industrial complex. What is the best way to challenge the political power of the police since we're living in a police state? Well, first of all, um, I think that, that we need to understand that the way the police to militarize uh, policing that we are witnessing in our communities, the uh, criminalization of generations of young black males and, and women, the marginalization of 
people of groups and minorities and their criminalization, Islamophobia, all of these aspects that have heavily influenced our policing as presently constituted. So the only way that we could really deal with the situation of police accountability, uh, reducing police brutality and police murder and intimidation of, of people of color is to control the police forces that police our communities. And that means we have to abolish um, our policing as it's presently constituted as it's presently constructed, as it's presently organized. And we have to establish a decentralized policing system, a system of community control policing, whether it's based on electoral districting lines or based on other demographic lines that have been recognized, zones or whatever. We need to have people controlling the armed agents of the state in their community. And this also may require uh, retraining of first responders to emergencies. This also may be require residency clauses for police in urban areas and in, in, in minority communities. There may be property should be set aside and developed so that the police can, can live in communities that they police rather than outside of those communities. And uh, we have to create mechanisms that move criminal justice or criminal uh, enforcement away from uh, the current paradigm of punishment to one of restorative justice where the community is involved in, in restoring the individuals who are convicted of criminal offenses in the community. There's a whole panacea, a whole pan a panoply of, of measures that we should be advocating. But the foremost one is to take community control of police. That we have to have that. We have to have um, a decentralized policing. We have to have community police boards, uh, community public safety boards where uh, professionals are under the command and control of elect community elected or public safety commissioners. So that's what we have to do. We have to abolish this appointed police chief hierarchical semi-military structure that the police have presently have. And, and of course, that means we have to come face to face with the police unions and how the police unions have completely outstripped and outstepped the boundaries of their charters and their purpose. We have police unions that right now can determine policies that are law enforcement policies in the black community, whereas the black community have no say-so in these policies at all. So we have to understand what the police unions are, who they represent, what they represent, and why do they have so much political influence to the point where our elected officials are more responsible to them than to us. So we have to first of all, first of all take on the political power of the police unions to interfere in the uh, socio-cultural uh, norms and municipal laws that affect our daily lives on, on, and our uh, quality of life. And so um, community control of police, of course, is uh, means that we have to abolish the, the type of uh, military corporate hierarchy that the police now function under and demilitarize them and make them more accountable to the public and public safety. I read recently and I heard you speak extensively about stealth history of uh, revisionism. Talk in depth to us about stealth history of revisionism and what it means to you. Well, stealth history is the rewriting of historical events in a way that a generation would uh, assume that those events substantiate uh, certain types of behavior today. Let me give you an example. People often talk about the, uh, the Black Panther Party 
and the original Black Panther Party and what it meant, what it advocated, the types of programs and projects that the party took undertake. But what a lot of folks don't understand is that at all, to, all during the existence of the Black Panther Party and the part, Black Panther Party in this revolutionary and um, and, and, and this revolutionary nationalist form only existed for, for a period of three or four years. It didn't exist longer than that, you know. People don't understand that at each point, at each year in the existence of the party, that the government um, unmasked different types of tactics and strategies and stratagems to destroy and derail the party. And one of the foremost ones that they used was, of course, disinformation. They would misrepresent the uh, the breakfast programs, uh, instance, as, as indoctrination uh, programs that was designed to indoctrinate young kids into, so that they would hate white. You know, this is the type of stuff that they would have. They, they conducted hearings. They conducted congressional hearings in which snitches and, and informers that uh, police informers came and testified in front of Congress that the Black Panther Party breakfast program was a, a, a propaganda a tool of, of, of communists and black nationalists who hated white people and that we were we were indoctrinating the children and we weren't just feeding them breakfast. It's the same thing that they did with all the little programs. Now you've had individuals who would go back and look at this history and the only thing that they would read is a congressional hearing that accuses the breakfast program of indoctrination. And they would use that in their thesis and they would use that to show how the Black Panther Party breakfast program really wasn't about breakfast at all. It was about brainwashing black children. And that's how the history would be portrayed. You see, we need we don't understand that that the people that the word history means his story. And those folks who suppressed the party who carried out the counterintelligence program, they're the ones that wrote the history um, that, that, that we're reading today. The, the real radical history, the real black radical history of the 60s and the 70s has never really been written except in piecemeal form. And so individuals can come out and say, yeah, well, I was in the party in 1968, and they could write their memoirs, and, they could, and it could be a bunch of crap, it could be a bunch of fabrications and lies. And the press knows that, the different major press know that, and they would they would give this individual a, a, a book contract, and the book will come out, and it'll be a bestseller, or it'll be on the book list, and people would read it, and students would re research it. And so the lies get perpetuated you know, and at the time that the people who actually live through these things are dying off and dying from old age, and of course they don't have any books to be to be published because they don't have any access to the media. So, so you know, stealth history is the revision and the rewriting of history by stealth, by 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 changing a few facts here, by by lying about representatives like people, for instance. They, they make certain assumptions about people we see today and what they actually did back in the 60s, whether it's Karanga, whether it's Angela Davis, whether it's Bobby Seale or anybody. People will make certain assumptions based on what they've read about them, that these are the things that they stood for and this is what they've done. And, and therefore, you know, they might even name their children after them because they admire those things. But the fact of the matter is, is that if you look at the histories of these individuals, if you actually know what actually happened, or if there was accounts that, that reflected what actually happened, you might have a whole different view about some of this stuff or the individuals involved. And so stealth history is, some, is, is, is a historical revision 
of, of the radical tradition to make black radicalism uh, a simplistic, to make it effect, appear as if it failed, appear as if it was idealistic, and, and reinforce the type of opportunism and black pragmatism that we have today uh, amongst certain um, organizations and individuals. All right, as someone that been in the Black Panther Party and was there from day one, and you mentioned the, the rewriting of history, a lot of people believe that Angela Davis doesn't tell the true story of the Black Panther Party and that she played a small and minute role. What are your thoughts on Angela Davis, her participation in the Black Panther Party, and the political line that she totes today. I haven't heard anything really where Angela actually said, you know, that she was a member of the Black Panther Party. And I, I think a lot of folks assume that that her relationship to George Jackson and to Jonathan Jackson and to the um, and to the political prisoners on the West Coast translates into her having been a member of the Black Panther Party. Angela Davis was never in the party. Angela Davis's roots actually come out of the Communist Party USA. You know, um, she was uh, she was a red baby. You know, some of her best friends were uh, were, were children of, of longtime members of the Communist Party USA. She was a student under uh, Herbert Marcuse when she was uh, in college. Um, Herbert Marcuse was an admittedly uh, a brilliant Marxist-Leninist uh, historian and, and analyst and, and philosopher, and uh, and and she was she she considered herself one of his students, and she was involved in in the, um, the uh, what they call it the uh, the Chain of Mumble Club, which was a Communist Party USA third world or black formation um, in California, and that's how she first began to get involved with political prisoners, particularly uh, with Jonathan and George Jackson. So, um, you know, she was never a member of the Black Panther Party, so that's, that's a misnomer. That's a mistake. But that's what I mean by how, how people will go back and read accounts. You know, there was a point in time when, um, and, and you could remember this, Raheem, there was a point in time not too long ago when when there was a dearth, uh, a scarcity of black women, uh, female sheroes for young black women to relate to, you know, other than the ones that, you know, that, that's been portrayed throughout history, you know, going back to slavery, whether it was Sojourner the Truth or, or, or whatever. There was a dearth of black women who were actually in the black power movement and who stood on the front lines until Elaine Brown wrote her book, uh, Taste of Power, and, and and Angela came out with some uh, uh, some publications, and then of course Asada's book, Asada Shakur's book, Asada's bio. So so these 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 uh, accounts of strong black women in positions of leadership at a at a at a tumultuous time in the history of black uh, of, of the black movement in the United States. Um, has has set off a whole wave of admirers and and stealth historians who who, who portray these people, um, uh, these sisters, in roles that they may or may not have played. Now, um, as far as Angela's um, of current politics and and her current analysis, you know, I got some some uh, differences with that. As far as her current 
positions on things with the Democratic Party with uh, with Hillary Clinton and her her analysis of certain things. You know, I have uh, certain um, problems with that. But then again, too, that you know, a lot of those differences could be seen in the early writings of George Jackson when he was critiquing Angela's analysis in 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 his prison letters. I know you read that. And you've seen the position that George took, and you saw the position that Angela took. So, I mean, you know, the fruit don't fall too far from the tree, and she has evolved along those lines. You know, she has evolved along those lines of of, of neoliberalism and, and the newfound feminist politics that, that seem to permeate uh, um, the movement nowadays. You know, this, this formless... Um, this organization that that, that 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 claims to have intersectionality intersectional relevancy you know um, which has led to no concrete fronts no concrete formations that can challenge the status quo in terms of building and uh and prepping our people for for a protracted struggle uh, and for protracted violent struggle with that now when you speak of a protracted violent struggle um some people may argue for that some people may argue against that in 2017 do you think that there is a possibility of a protracted struggle happening in order for individuals or black people in particular to become free well i don't think black folks really uh fully understand what's what's what they're up against first of all um, we've been constantly, we don't understand that, that we're living in a society that, in a nation state that is part, that is the centerpiece of an empire. And this empire is in crisis. And this empire is being chipped away and being chiseled into, into domestic and foreign policy crises. And these crises are going to affect us, whether it's in terms of employment, opportunities. You know, we're living in the, we're, we're living in the middle of a technological revolution, at the beginning of a technological revolution that's unprecedented in human history, okay? The Industrial Revolution is over. The corporations that met, that, that, um, and and the um, and the robber barons that establish the, the the economic structures and the economic networks of capitalism or finance capitalism that revolution is over and finance capitalism trying to adjust to the to the macroeconomics of of this industrial revolution the the, the shrinking of of communications between different people speaking different languages the melding the creation of a global culture of global of humanity looking at this world as as a whole you know these things you know globalization in terms of communications at, at, at you know threatens all elites all around the world which is and these elites thrive on war they thrive on conflict without war capitalist economies can't grow and if they and, and they tell you that the capitalist economy that's stagnant is one that's failing, so they can't produce jobs. So you you're dealing with a society in which it takes less people to uh, to 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 produce to produce wealth, and the majority of people are therefore consigned to being consumers. And as consumers, they have no power. 
As consumers, they have no leverage. It's only those who control production and control wealth who have any leverage. And and that's increasingly becoming a smaller and smaller minority. And and we see that in the electoral process. We see that in terms of what the police are out here to do, why they're militarized, why they are so they are the way they are. That the police are the are the um, armed agents of a state that's controlled by wealth, that's controlled by people with power and wealth and influence. And, and property, and that's the reality. And the majority of people are, 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 are don't have that power, and they are victimized by that. So inevitably, we're headed towards a conflict. We're in a protracted conflict. We're in a protracted conflict right now, in which uh, people are being terrorized and subjected to dehumanization by the very uh, instruments of power that they created to to express themselves and and empower themselves. So we're we're living in a situation. With a, with a government, the national security state, the state that looks at the, the deep state, sees all of citizens, all of the citizens as potential terrorists, as potential criminals, people that have to be watched, that have to be surveilled, that have to be put into DNA, uh, to DNA data banks, and all of this stuff. You see, so yes, we're headed for that type of confrontation. We're already in that type of confrontation, and the rise of right wing. Uh, uh, Nazism and fascism and white supremacy, you know, just mirrors the insecurity of the class, the white class that that served as a buffer between the elite rich and those who controlled uh, wealth and, and, and the masses of people who, who created that wealth, which is people of color. And so we see that as the demographics in the United States changes, as it becomes browner and browner, you know, we see that the institutions that were built for white supremacy to sustain white supremacy can no longer function in the old ways that they used to function. So they have to be changed. You have to build walls, you know, not so much to keep people out, but to make sure that your ass don't get out and to make sure that certain things don't come in. And, and you see that the rise of, of, of rich billionaires to, to, to outright political control of the institutions that's supposed to regulate this type of stuff should tell you that we are on the cusp of, of global conflict and domestic conflict and war. And we're ill-prepared for it. Our communities are not organized. We don't have control over local law enforcement. We don't have control over those forces in our community that affect our daily lives. And as uh, Imam Jamil Alameen said, what you don't control controls you. And, and that's where we're at right now. We're, we're at the mercy of the national security state and the police state. And we have not devised apparatus to resist that, that weakness and that subjugation. And that's where we stand right now. Yes, we are headed toward this type of confrontation and this type of conflict. All right, I got two more questions and then we're done. Israel and Palestine are considered uh, a settler state. Can you enlighten us what started the ongoing conflict in Israel between Israel and Palestine? And what is the solution to that ongoing problem over there? Well, well Israel is a European settler state. I mean, everybody knows that. The Israelis, um, the Europeans who, who, who settled it, who, who took the land from the Palestinians, um, have been trying to convince the rest of the world that, you know, this is the land that God gave them. People in that, that's currently in, in Israel, they have no relationship to the ancient Jewish people from that region. 
they were all from uh, they're all from Europe they're all from the region of the Caucasus mountains and and they adapted um, Ashkenazi uh, Judaism um, only only five or six centuries ago so so the, the people that are there they're Europeans they came um, they, they, they took the land they, they, they would see actually the land the whole arrangement was made as a result of the uh, World War One and, and the Balfour Agreement and the British collusion with the, uh, with Rothschilds and various Jewish interests, Zionist interests in Europe uh, that were heavily into financing uh, uh, the British and the French and the uh, U.S. involvement in World War One. Um, as you well know, um, what's, what's Palestine today, what's occupied Israel today, used to fell into. Uh, a League of Nations mandate at the end of World War One. World War One uh, saw Turkish Empire, the Ottoman Empire, which controlled most of the Levant, which today we call Lebanon, uh, Syria, Palestine, and Jordan. That used to be called the Levant. And um, <clears throat> for, for several, for over 400 years, it was under Ottoman rule. It was under Muslim Ottoman, uh, Turkish rule. Was part of the Ottoman Empire, just just as um, just as northern the northern coast of of Africa were part of the Ottoman Empire, and um, you know the whole the whole thing we hear about the Marines and the Barbary pirates, and and the coast you know the Barbary the so-called Barbary pirate pirates on the Algerian and Libyan coast along that line they were they were total keepers for the Ottoman Empire. They controlled all of the commercial traffic heading out to Gibraltar, heading out into the towards the West, and the West didn't like that at the time. And so, you know, um, that's a whole different story. But in terms of of the European settler state of Israel, the uh, the British um, and and the Allies who fought against the German and the Central Powers in World War One uh, imposed uh, a, a fermented a Arab rebellion. Against the Ottoman Empire, against Turkish rule, um, in in what is now the Middle East, and and um, and that was successful. It resulted in the carving up of the Ottoman Empire. The Turks were on the side of the Germans, and the Central Powers in World War Two and in World War One. So they were on the losing side. And in fact, Turkey was occupied by the Allies for a certain period of time. So the Ottoman Empire was carved up. And it was given to certain Arab rulers who agreed that the mineral resources, namely oil, that was at uh, that was underneath the sands of the region, could be supplied to the British and the French and the Europeans in perpetuity if they protected their interests. So the British set up, um, and the French, uh, they created modern Syria, they created Lebanon, they carved it up and they diced it up, and they they created the borders for modern. For, for Lebanon, for Syria, for uh, Jordan, they created Transjordan, they created modern Egypt, they created uh, uh, the Saudi kingdoms under King Saud, who fought for the who fought for the British against the Turks uh, during World War One uh, as a guerrilla fighter, um, and so the, the Middle East as we now know it was created as a consequence of the Allied victories uh, over Germany and the Central Powers in World War One. And and it went on to World War Two, where the um, where the Italians and the fascists tried to retake Ethiopia, Somalia, and all of this stuff. So what we're seeing today, um, we know about the 
the the Jewish, uh, the genocide that the Germans carried out against Jews and non non Germans, the Roma people, and that created the type of global sentiment that permitted the League of Nations mandate, which was transferred to the United Nations when it was formed. Uh, the League of Nations mandate, which was up in 1947, I believe. Uh, the League of Nations mandate uh, allowed for, uh, for refugees from, from war-torn Europe, mainly Jews, to, to resettle in, in, um, in, um, in Palestine. And, 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 and so that's what they did. They, they, they bum-rushed the land. Um, after the end of World War II, they created the state. The first person to recognize that state was the United States, and um, and the rest is history. They fought a few a few wars with with Egypt and and its Arab and the Arab neighbors, and they prevailed in all of those wars. And they seized the Golan Heights, and I think the '67 war. They seized the Golan Heights in Syria. They seized Jerusalem and and the West Bank. In um, in the '67 war, and they have been occupying these territories ever since. And they have been expanding the settlers, the settlements of Europeans and Americans. We need to understand some of the foremost settlers, the most militant settlers, are white Americans, are white American Jews, who have moved to Israel, who are given uh, a, a large grants of money to resettle to move from the U.S. to Israel. So we need to understand that there's a, there's a direct correlation between the European settler state of Israel and the United States, just as there was a similar correlation between the apartheid state of South Africa, the Boers in South Africa, and the Dutch and, um, and British colonials before South Africa uh, uh, became independent. I definitely agree with you when you say that there's a correlation between the settler state of Israel and the United States because a lot of police from the New York City Police Department, if I'm correct, are training them over there, correct? Yeah, well, I mean, it's the reverse. Yeah, yeah, that's what I meant. United, it's, it's actually the Israeli, the Shin Beth, um, the Israeli version of the FBI. I mean, the New York City Police Department has has an office, has a liaison office in Tel Aviv, and 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 you can walk in there, and it's got a big NYPD sign on it. I mean, since when is a as as did a municipal police department have a liaison office like it was a foreign office to the State Department? So there's a close relationship between Israeli police and U.S. police. Um, if you remember, if you recall. If you recall the recent, the recent so-called wave of of anti-Semitic, uh, Semitic, uh, 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 bomb threats that was threatening, that that they said that that, that has come, that has risen up during the Trump administration, and 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 it was it was being talked about more than actual murder of black kids. You know um, the so-called rise of anti-Semitism. Come to find out, it was it was the Israeli dual citizen who was who was conducting these bomb threats from Israel. You know, and he was arrested, and you know his case is still pending. Now they say that he was 
that he was mentally defective, he was sick, he was crazy, and all of these things. But we need to understand that American law enforcement and Israeli um, um, uh, uh, civil civil police and, and intelligence have always worked very closely hand in hand, especially in New York and Chicago and and Philadelphia they, these police departments have undergone training with the Israelis and it was doing this back in the days of the Black Panther Party you know so um, this is nothing new and in fact if you notice almost every mayor of New York has to take an obligatory uh, Hajj visit uh, or, or trip to Israel to show how he is pro-Zionist how he is a pro-Israel Israeli supporter you know, especially when 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 that human rights report came out on Israel and how Israel was violating human rights and it was it was a possibly war, a war criminal. You know, uh, Bloomberg jumped on a plane and flew all the way and flew to Israel to show his solidarity um, with, with with Israel and how the report was bogus. You see, so we need to understand that, you know, uh, places like New York, where Wall Street is at, have always enjoyed the close relationship to uh, to finance capitals, um, uh, uh, big big partners in, in, in Tel Aviv and Jerusalem. All right, this is Necessary Blackness Podcast, and I'm your host, Raheem Shabazz, and that's going to wrap it up for us with Daruba Ben Wadhad. Uh, Daruba, is there anything that you would like to say in your last closing words or anything that I forgot to mention that you want to just highlight to our people? Well, I just want to say that right now as we speak, over 10 million Africans are on the verge of famine and starvation in Africa. And um, and the only person that recognized um, uh, this and, and did something about it, um, Colin uh, Kaepernick, who sent over a plane load of food to uh, to feed starving Africans. Now, we have all of these Negroes out there just running around with their gold chains and all of the money and, and jumping in and out of their limos, talking about how they get paid and how, how rich they are. You know, so but we don't have a pan, we don't have a pan-African refugee and relief agency. We don't have no consortium of, of, of black activists who are able to deliver food and shelter and clothing and something concrete to Africans other than rhetoric, other than, you know, buy black and, and all of that stuff. So that's one of the things I think that we need to understand. That while we're talking about a lot of these things with Trump and AFRICOM and what's going on, we need to understand that there are people, women and children and babies right now, African children and babies who are starving and on the verge of starvation. So I, I just wanted that to be... Um, a reminder. That's what I'm working on, trying to create uh, a Pan-African Refugee and Relief Agency that's that's sustained by us and 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 administered by us. We don't have to depend on on the Salvation Army or Red Cross in order to deal with people, African people who are suffering. Most definitely, because we know when we depend on the Red Cross and different relief agencies that. The refugees never get this money, and we've seen that in Haiti, and we've seen that in various states throughout the diaspora, and mm-hmm. we've seen what the Clintons did with the money that <laughs> was supposed to be allotted to Haiti. Do you want to talk about that? Well, you know, um, I, 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 I'm, I, it's, that's a whole nother program, <laughs> but what I'm just trying to say is, is that, you know, uh, I know there's a lot of, there are a few activists having worked 
having worked in, in, in Africa with, you know, dealing with Liberian refugees and, and stuff like that, that we have, uh, we, we have, we have some young brothers and sisters um, who have the skill set where we could run our own agency, but we don't have all the resources and what we don't have is the willpower and, and uh, to do it, but we can, we can do that. We can provide we can provide um, a relief to Africans who who are in desperate need of food and shelter and medical care. You know, we can do that. We could partner with the United Nations. We could partner with other relief, a, a private relief agencies. But we have to bring something to the table, and that's what I'm going to try to work on in the next few months. I'm going back to Africa in June and to reestablish my NGO and try to work on that. A lot of people don't know that at one time you actually. Actually lived in Africa for several years. How many years you lived in Africa, and what was your experience like over there? Well, that's another that's another program. I lived in Africa for about 13, 14 years, and um, when after I got out of prison, and um, and <clears throat> the experience was it's it's giving me a, a greater appreciation of the potential of really building a pan-African movement. But at the same time, I understand um, how there's an enormous vacuum in Africa in terms of um, the type of leadership that uh, Kwame Nkrumah, uh, Julius and, and Yere and Sekutori uh, once represented, you know. And so now you have Africa is in a crisis. You know, it's in a serious crisis, and uh, just like just like uh, we're in a crisis over here, it's all related. And so, we really have to understand that during this crisis, real wealth is not is not a dollar bill. That represents debt. You know, a dollar bill, a ten dollar bill, is, is a represents it represents de- uh, a debt. It's 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 not a representation of wealth. You know, uh, they print that. There's an agency in the U.S. that's not even part of the U.S. government, the U.S. Mint. They print money. They print money on demand. You know, it has no relationship to actual gold or silver or land. It has no relationship to anything. It's printed. And so it's an IOU. It used to be based on gold. It's not based on gold anymore. So what we need to understand that true wealth, true power is based on two things right now that are in dire um, need, and that's land and gold. And, and Africa got plenty of both. And what we haven't done is we haven't taken the transitory um, wealth and money and resources that we have and put them into the type of agencies and the type of networks that will empower us, that will allow us to make independent political decisions, that will allow us to run our own independent candidates, that will allow us to be truly sovereign thinking people. And that relationship is a pan-African international relationship, the largest diaspora in the world is the African diaspora and we need to understand uh, what that really means absolutely all right we're gonna close this out and conclude it i know i said that before but this brother has so much knowledge so much wisdom that he is bringing forth to us in deruba we got to get that book out brother i i, I well, i'm working on it I'm, I'm working on it this year man we got some i'm working on it with some comrades man we get ready to come out with an anthology on black liberation army you know written by the soldiers that was in it so you know those of us who are left alive so we working on it man appreciate the opportunity to kick it with you on your podcast man i really appreciate it
That's it for us right here on Necessary Blackness Podcast. And I'm your host, Raheem Shabazz. Make sure, family, that you leave us a review on iTunes. You can go to iTunes and put Necessary Blackness in the search engine and leave us a review. Let us know what you think about our podcast and let us know if you have any ideas for any guests Also, we received several emails next week. I promise you, family, I'm going to read about three or four of them online. Continue to send us emails at NecessaryBlacknessPodcast at Gmail. And if you don't already have your copy of Elementary Genocide, The School to Prison Pipeline, or Elementary Genocide 2, The Board of Education versus the Board of Incarceration, make sure you go out and get that family. You can go to elementarygenocide.com get you a copy you will also go to Amazon and order you a copy you also can go to Amazon and stream it for those that like to stream definitely check out Amazon stream it on there and I will see you next week same time same place peace and black power family